And we're at a moment where sort of all all contradictions are heightened, right? Byproduct of the crisis of contemporary capitalism. This week in class politics. Classic fucking boomer. Old new left. Maintaining the relations of neoliberalism. No! Capital. No! Capital. No! Capital. No! 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 Ideas are international, but we're from cameras. You're listening to Dole Capital, a show that discusses developments in class struggle and left politics in Australia and beyond. We're back this month to a summit of expectations, the cost of living crisis, blunt interest rate rises and expectations for the federal government to do something serious about Australia's broken industrial laws at its recent job summit. My name's Ben and on this show you'll be hearing Jacob and I talk with our most excellent guest, Ben Eltham. But first... Patreon. This show wouldn't be possible without our patrons and supporters. A big shout out to our comrades for their financial solidarity. You can donate at www.patreon.com forward slash dollcapital. That's D-O-H-K-P-I-T-A-L. Also, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at dollcapital. Please like, share and subscribe to our show and leave a review on your preferred podcast application. Before we get started, Jacob. Uh, we're recording, uh, Ben and I are recording on Ngunnawal country. Where are you coming to us from, uh, Ben Elfin? Yeah, I'm from Jabalong country out in regional Victoria, actually. Yeah, great. So, um, of course, um, as always on Dog Capital, we acknowledge uh, um, the traditional owners of the land that we record on. And um, we also acknowledge that the sovereignty was, sovereignty was never ceded. Um, and we support their ongoing struggles to correct injustices of the past in colonial Australia. Yeah, now we're joined by journalist and social commentator Ben Elfin who has an excellent piece in the current Jacobin Australia. Check it out, uh, It's which was all about uh, Australian the Australian cost of living crisis and options available for the federal government. We wanted to talk to Ben about what's happening with the economy, uh, the much hyped job summit held recently, and, um, you know, I guess a look at what the various options that are available for the federal labour, um, whether or not there's actually going to be some more reform or not for working people and the poor, but you know, just generally what's going on in the political economy is really pretty much what we'll have you answer. Ben, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure to be on. And look, it's been a dramatic little over three months now since the Federal Australian Labor Party or the PLP, as we like, you know, referring to it on this one. We like to differentiate between um, uh, Federal Labor not being. Uh, the North Korean Communist Party, where you understand that, you know, there's really the states that run the Labor Party. It's not the, the camera. But anyway, so the PLP is in government. Uh, the economy is taking really big hits at the moment on inflation and the consistently um, rising interest rates for home buyers is um, not much fun for some people out there. While workers and uh, the poor share of the economy continues to be squeezed. We've seen Anthony Albanese's, uh, our Prime Minister, is leading a parliamentary party that took a very small target uh, a very small redistributive reform pledges to the electorate and uh, arguably we arguably they had a, an economic analysis that uh, the economy was tracking along okay before they took government and after um, particularly after the pandemics and the lockdown period that things would look um, a bit more shiny and rosy was probably some of what some commentators were talking about. And I think that's, I think we, we're going from the background of that. I think they had a rather positive view of what's going on. But what we're seeing now is a, very much a government, a federal government that's being squeezed by a worsening economic situation. There's pressure from a cross-section of the population, from from workers and from business organisations and the like, that um, there needs to be a lot more done. And 
then so far what's been promised has been pretty small, let alone anything being talked about being legislated against. So in this background, we've got these economic drivers going on. We've got the Reserve Bank of Australia taking, going from like, I think some people might remember um, a less aggressive RBA not that long ago under the, under the coalition government that kept interest rates really low. And now all of a sudden we're having interest rate rises all uh, it seems to be just be a monthly occurrence now. Um, what do you think about, you know, these, like the interest rates and these economic drivers that are going on, Ben? What do you think that's about? Well, thanks, Ben. Yes. I mean, I think it's a, a very interesting moment in Australia's political economy, actually. Uh, you're right to point out that um, we've reached something of a, of a inflection point in uh, central bank policy in Australia. And I think we have seen a really rapid flick of the switch from the RBA from a very accommodative monetary policy for much of the last decade, all of a sudden they've turned into inflation hawks and uh, they're ramping up interest rates very rapidly indeed. Now, of course, they're not alone in the uh, the Western world. Lots of central banks are doing that. The US Fed's doing it. Uh, uh, There's been significant rate rises uh, across the OECD. Um, Even the Europeans, who, of course, are famously reluctant to to raise rates um, under Mario Draghi, uh, are now raising rates as well um, under uh, uh, Christine before. Um, so, you know, we've got some really interesting things going on in, in the global macro kind of settings. And um, I think we're seeing a really, really interesting shift in monetary policy in Australia that's really bad actually for workers. So if you look at the latest stats, CPI is running at 6%. So that's consumer inflation over the last year. Wages are running at about 2.5%. So real wages are going backwards by 3.5% a year. So that's a very rapid confiscation of of workers' income, if you like. Basically, they're going backwards quite quickly. um, And that's going to have very serious consequences for working people and for people of modest incomes. And we're seeing that particularly right now with renters. Uh, So uh, not just in capital cities too, in regional Australia as well is seeing very rapid rises in rents and that's having massive impacts on people's lives, basically. So, Ben, you passed along a piece by the economist Adam Tooze, which we'll link in the description. Uh, And in that, he basically distinguishes between the situation uh, with inflation in the US versus in in Europe. Uh, Basically, what he argues is that the US is experiencing a generalized inflation um, and he describes it as being uh, slow in pace, but broad-based and, you know, including uh, the price of wages, which is a critical part of the the distinction that he draws. Um, And that's opposed to the situation in Europe, which he uh, says is really due to uh, supplier shocks, uh, really sort of localised in energy and food markets. So I'm wondering how would you compare Australia's situation to those uh, two as outlined by twos? So I think that the situation in Australia is much closer to the situation in Europe than it is in the situation in America. We don't have a wage price spiral in Australia. Uh, as I pointed out, wages are lagging prices by a considerable margin. And in that scenario, as Tooze points out, what's really going on here, particularly in the context of high profits, which we know that Australian corporations are recording record profits at the moment, what's going on in the macroeconomic sense there, as Tooze points out, is a huge wealth redistribution upwards, essentially, from uh, labour, from workers, 
um, up to the owners of capital, to corporations and the people who, who run them. Um, so yep. it's really quite dramatic in the Australian situation. And I think that also points to the, the, the kind of hollowness of the inflation scare, in, at least in Australia. Uh, we've had, um, obviously, we've had big price rises, but a lot of them have been driven by supply shocks, particularly coming out of China related to their COVID lockdowns and also energy. And again, that's been driven by geopolitical factors, the war in Ukraine, um, the blockade of Russian oil and so on and so forth. So um, in that scenario where you've got prices and profits galloping ahead of wages, that's, uh, it's really quite bad news indeed for Australian workers. And unfortunately, the Australian political economy is not really geared to give workers a share of that wealth uh, because of the way that our industrial relations system has been structured over the last 30 years means that it's almost impossible for organised labour to get a foothold uh, and, and to win back some of those, um, you know, to win wage increases at all, really. For example, it's almost impossible to go on strike in Australia. So, you know, if you combine those factors together, that makes it very difficult in Australia, the current settings for workers. And I, I guess with that, Ben, like the job summit, which we saw recently, the, the PLP floated an industry-wide bargaining. Is this something there's been whispers about and some story, you know, a return of industry-wide bargaining, but the real catch here being uh, stipulating that, no, no, you can't have industry-wide industrial action was um, a bit of a corker. Um do you, do you think we're going to see any major reform to Australia's industrial relations system um, in the, this current period of the, the Albanese government uh, that's going to be um, help uh, enable workers to secure wage increases that are better than inflation? I mean, I think the short answer is no, unfortunately. Yeah. What we're likely to see, uh, I'm afraid, is going to be increases, you know, tinkering at the edges essentially. Like we'll to see little... Little improvements here and there. Tony Burke, the industrial relations minister, may well improve matters slightly for gig workers and for precarious and insecure workers in various parts of the economy. But in the big picture, I don't think we'll see strikes, you know, legalised in the in the true sense of the word, you know, in the sort of international labour organisation definition of what of what the right to strike would be. We we haven't had that in Australia for thirty years, and we're not likely to get that anytime soon. Um, so you know, I'm not holding out a lot of hope for labour to to suddenly hoist the red flag and uh, announce a, a workers' commune. Um, we, we we will see some, I think, some some helpful and some modest improvements. Of course, a lot of that will depend on the Senate and what Labor can negotiate with the Senate crossbench. Um, but I, I'm not seeing a, a, the likelihood of a big reset in the, the power relationships between capital and Labor in this term of government. Just um, like connecting these two questions about, um, you know, policy responses to the current situation, um, as well as um, the activity of central bankers. We typically think of central banks' uh, roles as being to sort of discipline the consumer through um, making it more expensive to borrow money. Um, but uh, is there anything else that it could be going on here? I know in Adam Tooze's discussion of um, what's going on with the ECB, there's a sort of speculation that maybe um, it's more about um, disciplining or affecting or trying to prompt a certain, certain approach to uh, fiscal policy. Um, so... 
can central banks use um, rate hikes like this um, to uh, put pressure onto national governments um, as opposed to just using it as an instrument to affect consumers and, and, and borrowers? Well, that's a really interesting one, you know, and to return to that Adam Tooze article that we talked about before, he points out that unusually at the moment in global macro terms, monetary and fiscal policy are in lockstep. So fiscal policy is tightening at the same time as we're seeing these big interest rate hikes um, worldwide. So that is obviously pretty concerning for the medium term in terms of the outlook for growth and whether you know, basically we could overshoot and end up in a nasty global recession. Um, in Australia, it's not quite as bad because ironically, and this is kind of funny, because of the stage three tax cuts that the Morrison government legislated and that Labor has so controversially committed to keeping, um, they represent a, a really quite significant fiscal loosening that's uh, in the pipeline. Of course, most of that will flow to very wealthy taxpayers um, and won't trickle down particularly much to the middle income and lower income workers. But nonetheless, it is in, in sort of macro terms a quite significant injection into um, fiscal policy, you know, a, a loosening of fiscal policy um, that will have, you know, positive impacts on macroeconomic growth and Australian GDP. So, you know, ironically, you know, um, at least in Australia, fiscal policy will mitigate some of the tightening that the Reserve Bank is doing. Now, does that mean the Reserve Bank will go harder? Possibly, yes. Uh, and that's a concern in itself. Uh, and, of course, that doesn't solve the, the bigger problem also of, uh, you know, the, the redistributive effects of the tax cuts themselves. So the tax cuts, as I think most of your listeners will be aware, are pretty bad for inequality. You know, they're going to make rich people even richer and they're not going to give very much at all to lower and, and middle income earners. And as a result of that, you know, um, you know that they're a bit of a wash in terms of like, you know, would, would we like to have the tax cuts? You know, basically not. I think most Labor voters and, and left of centre voters would say, you know, we'd, we'd like to get rid of the tax cuts and spend that money on useful things like schools and hospitals and, um, you know, perhaps a basic income. Who knows? Um, none of that's obviously going to happen. But I think it highlights once again, you know, Labor's, you know, I think kind of let's call it sort of revanchist neoliberalism. So under Chalmers... You know, there's a, there's a kind of, I think, a hankering for the 1990s and the kind of orthodoxy of um, the, the Keating era, the idea that Labor are the, the keepers of the flame of economic rationalism, you know. Um, the, these might, these ideas might sound ridiculous to, to people in 2022, but I think they actually sum up a certain kind of mindset, particularly within the PLP, as you say. So, um, you know, there's some really interesting challenges actually ahead for Labor on how to how to manage this transition into a much tighter global monetary environment and also what pot what potentially might happen, you know, to the economy in 2023. You know, I think uh, there, there's a, a genuine chance uh, that we will have a hard landing and we could have quite a nasty recession next year. And look, we'll get back to the, the responses or the like or what's driving the PLP uh, in, in a moment. Well, I've also the the reactions to the current situation from the big end of town has been well, it's been I guess in terms of dealing with the current cost of living crisis, 
we see the more strange and bizarre things probably in the United Kingdom, which is at very much at the extreme of what 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 is really really bad in terms of how neoliberalism's played out there. Um, Europe, yeah, uh, a lot less so, but uh, in Australia, what we've seen has been. Um, as we've talked about, we've um, some very strange ideas. They're, they're just continuing this argument that uh, any sort of decent wage rises will cause further inflation. We've, you know, that's just, you know, well, that's just silly. We don't have a crisis of wage increases. We have a crisis of profits in this country. Uh, and then we've seen the uh, the big inner town and their supporters talk about reducing taxation for well-off, which, you know, we've got this political bind that the, the PLP seems to have decided that they're going to put themselves through. And then we've got, um, in reaction to, I mean, this is the interesting, I'm interested in your take, Ben, like, we, in this situation in Australia, we've normally got full employment, uh, and there is an interesting argument around lefties who are like, well, we've got full employment, we should celebrate this, versus the actual argument like, well, it's all very nice we've got full employment, but just because you worked for one hour at Uber isn't really something to celebrate. Like you disappear from the unemployment stats if you work for an hour or case of beer or whatever. Yeah, like not much to sort of crow about. Uh, a response to sort of weight, you know, shortages of labour. We've got the Retail Retailers Association talking about lowering the, the working age to 13 years. Um, what What is going on? Like the, the LNP side of town, the neoliberal side of town, the the Big business organisations seem to have gotten all the very quite quite silly in terms of um, is it complete delusional or have they actually got a point in terms of how we deal with the current cost of life, cost of living crisis? Well, I think there's a couple of cross cutting currents at play here. So, on the one hand, you know, yes, we do have something approaching full employment. I mean, unemployment in Australia is. At a, at a rate that we used to sort of think would be a wonderful thing. So I think we should celebrate the fact that lots of people have jobs and that there's opportunities for people to, to come into the workforce that have been locked out of the labour force for a long mm-hmm. time because of Australia's, you know, very, very, um, uh, I think, kind of austere settings, particularly in fiscal policy. So... You know, um, remember when Josh Frydenberg was treasurer, he said full employment was 5%, right? So, of course, you know, at that at that rate, we're now 1.5% below um, 5% in terms of the unemployment rate, and yet we're not seeing a wages breakout, um, mm. and we're not seeing a wage price spiral. Um, wages are stubborn. They're not really moving. And why is that? Well, of course, the reason is because our political economy is set up essentially to deny workers wage rises it's really set up for wage suppression it's incredibly difficult uh, to get a wage rise in australia i mean think about what has to happen even to go on strike in this country you've essentially got to uh, have an enterprise agreement be in negotiations for a new enterprise agreement then you've got to go cap in hand to the Fair Work Commission and beg for the right to take protected action, which the Commission may or may not grant you. And if they do, then you can, with the very nice permission of the Fair Work Commission, you can go on strike. Mm-hmm. Right? So these are not the kind of rules and regulations uh, that are uh, you know, guaranteed to, to give workers a, a lot of collective power in the, in the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, while we've got, you know, very healthy employment. Um, the, what's funny, I think, or what's kind of amusing from the business lobby is it's kind of be careful what, what you wish for essentially for them. So on the one hand, they want economic growth and that's great, but they actually don't really want a labour market this tight because 
all of a sudden it's hard to find the workers that they need. It's hard to find the workers at the price that they want to pay for those wages. Um, and, and so, you know, they're forced of some, you know, difficult choices about, you know, perhaps training people, you know, or perhaps increasing <laughs> their wages to, to bring more workers into their mm. into the labour force. Um, and, of course, capitalists don't like doing that. And they haven't had to do that in the Australian economy for a generation. So management's a little, a little bit of a loss, right? Um, so um, if you've got particularly regressive or, or kind of, um, let's say, incompetent managers um, or just nasty managers like Alan Joyce at Qantas, then the solution then is simply to try and smash your workforce, uh, you know, lay off as many staff as possible and, and rehire kind of labour hire solutions to, to kind of solve that problem. And they, they're struggling with that. So, you know, I think full employment's actually, you know, it's kind of creating some interesting problems for management. Like what you were just um, saying there was basically that the, um, subjective tendencies in the um, middle and upper management sort of strata of big business are way um, de- over-determining um, sort of what is done in response to the objective situation, right? Um, and in the case of um, Alan Joyce and Qantas, which you mentioned, it's like uh, not even good business practice from the perspective of their shareholders because at the same time, the result is that they're destroying their reputation and uh and they're um, eroding their customer base. So um, I wonder um, in terms of the Job Summit's, um, you know, proposals that have come out of this big meeting of the minds, what you guys think about. Um, we had a bit of murmuring about the possibility for multi-employer bargaining. Uh, however, uh, as soon as this hit the discourse, uh, we had people from the PLP basically pouring cold water on the idea of the possibility of multi-employer strikes, um, which would be a, a really meaningful uh, shift in the balance of power in uh, in terms of industrial relations. So um, is there any point to multi-employer bargaining without multi-employer striking? So, I mean, I think multi-employer bargaining would be a step in the right direction, but it's a long way from what we really need, which is a free and open right to strike. Uh, you know, multi-employer bargaining um, creates a, a more complex and a, and a more kind of collective approach to industry-wide um, negotiation for wages and conditions, and that's obviously positive. Uh, it's positive particularly for workers because they'll be able to use their collective strength uh, to take on, uh, you know, whole industries. You know, it's, it's, it's incredibly hard, obviously, if you, if you work in a, a community childcare centre of 10 people to, uh, you know, negotiate, to, to go on strike. Um, you know, it's just, it's just not realistic um, and it's, it's very difficult um, for, for workers to do it. It's very difficult for unions to represent, you know, such a, a fractured and a disjointed workforce across, you know, hundreds if not thousands of different firms. You know, so multi-employee bargaining will help, you know, certainly, but I don't think it's going to, you know, magically deliver a workers' paradise. Mm. You know, it, it might get wages up in some industries, and of course, this is why businesses, the business lobby, is worried about it because all of a sudden you've got this scenario where you might have a return to sort of seventy-style pattern bargaining, where uh, unions could pick off weak employers one by one and basically impose, uh, you know, a wage and condition kind of uh, template onto employers. I mean, certainly at the NTEU, 
Um, you know, we, we would welcome multi-employer bargaining, um, I think, because, you know, if, if you could imagine a scenario where all of the universities in Australia were able to negotiate wages and conditions, that would be very advantageous, particularly for workers at some of the smaller regional universities that don't have a strong hand in negotiating with their management. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's probably not the panacea that the union movement hold it out to be, but nor is it the existential fear that the business community claims it to be. You know? And I think that it kind of um, it also highlights some of those difficult decisions or those difficult positions that the Parliamentary Labor Party finds itself in, which is on the one hand, they want to be seen as stewards of the economy and, and kind of, uh, you know, responsible managers of the economy and, and, and kind of, um, you know, neoliberals in a sense, you know. Um, and on the other hand, you know, they, they obviously do claim to be trying to get wages up. So um, it, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a balancing act and um, one that I think Chalmers and Albanese are going to find increasingly difficult in the years to come. Hmm. Uh, ben, you brought up your um, your uh, activity in the NTEU. So um, while we're on the subject of um, the Job Summit, um, I thought I'd ask, I, I noticed in their... Um, summary of their outcomes this might be something they'd already committed to um not long before the job su- job summit i think but um you know and also speaking of labor as the kind of handmaidens of neoliberalism in australia um that they've committed to a um a new australian universities accord so uh, i'm wondering if you can enlighten us on that and if you've um gotten much indication from jason clare the um, education minister at the moment um what that might look like yeah, I don't know if we have a lot of details, uh, you know, and I should say that I, I'm just a sort of fairly junior representative in the sure. NTU. Sure. I'm, a, I'm a representative for Monash University. There's 39 universities. Um, we have a national elected leadership, but I, I defer to them on on those kind of big picture policy mm. things. But, uh, but you know, speaking per, in a personal capacity, um, I don't have a lot of... File. It's a regular podcast, yeah. File, you know, like um, I don't think the uh, university's accord will deliver too much really. Mm. Um you know, I think universities are really interesting um, prism to to look at these kind of political economy issues through. Actually, so universities are supposedly public institutions; they're largely mm-hmm. funded by the taxpayer. Their mission is ostensibly non-profit, and um, you know, non-private. It's they're meant to be uh, educational institutions delivering higher learning. And yet, if you look at the modern university, like the one that I work at. You know, they're, they're incredibly corporatized. You know, they're run by a coterie of highly paid, you know, academic managers who are paid, you know, well in excess of, of, of what, um, you know, comparable executives are paid in overseas universities. Uh, the boards of management, you know, like their councils and their um, boards of directors are all captains of industry. Um, you know, our one at, at Monash is from Rio Tinto and Macquarie Bank, right? Um, so these are the guys who are running our universities. And so, um, you know, they, they kind of mirror really the, the neoliberal environment of the rest of the economy. So because of that, you know, they, they're, they're really quite hostile to their staff and to unions. I would describe Monash University's management as union busters almost. You know, they have 
a visceral loathing of the union of staff representation at their institution. So, you know, in that context, it's hard to see how, you know, an accord at a national level with a few kind of, um, you know, incentives and, you know, maybe some checks and balances and a bit of regulation thrown in, it's hard to see how that's going to roll back the tide of corporatisation that's been so dangerous and so damaging to higher education in Australia. Um, you know, I'll give you one example, the Tertiary Education Quality Safety Authority or TEXA, which is supposedly the university's regulator, mm. you know, that they are a toothless tiger. And you've got universities literally stealing the wages of their teachers. And I think more than 20 Australian universities have admitted to wage theft now. But there's been no prosecution of a university by yep. the, the tertiary regulator. So, yeah, I don't hold out a lot of hope for the university's accord. Mm, absolutely. And, you know, thinking about this in terms of um, an accord, like the Wages and Prices Accords, um, that framing it in this way suggests that it would involve some kind of trade-off of um, of some conditions for others. And so that raises this this question of, like, given the current state of um, of the job market and the state of employment in universities, what could uh, academics possibly have left to give, particularly after, like, the state that they've been left in after COVID? Um, it just sort of it does boggle the mind about what they might be expecting yeah. <laughs> academic workers yeah. currently, especially those working in casualized positions um, to give up in exchange for um, whatever they might ask for. It seems absurd. Yeah. I think what you're reminding me of um, Jacob and Ms. Ben is it, it's a similar, the crisis in, you know, the, in the academy, if you like, is also mirrored in terms of the care sector. So whether we're talking about childcare or if we're talking about aged care, uh, we're talking about the way in which neoliberalism has gone and gotten itself into new markets, so to speak. These were areas that previously used to be, um, be provided by support from the state. People pay their taxes and people could sort of, you know, depend on them being sort of reasonable outcomes there in terms of access to, to education. At one point we had free higher education for quite some time and there's still people on the front bench of the Fred PLP who got to have free, free education. And I also remember some of the scumbags who were quite happy to uh, go along with their Keating sort of worship stuff and uh, condemn the ex-gen students who tried to fight, uh, spent a long time trying to stop deregulation of unis. But I, th I think what we got now, I'm seeing a pattern, which we saw with the Royal Commission that the Morrison government did into aged care, where they identified all the problems. And what they did was they just said, well, we'll just create, uh, we'll get some more powers to a regulatory body. It's like, well, you've already got a regulatory body. It's pretty powerless. Oh, we'll give some more powers and we'll just do lots of more training. But there's no money for, for actually fixing wages. Now, I'm not saying that the PLP is going to do that. Very similar. I think there might actually be some money for wages, but they're going to continue with this, this sort of um, blind ideology that we have to have profit the, the proper mechanism uh, involved in the care for um, vulnerable people. And we'll see that played out in terms of aged care. We'll see it played out in childcare. And we're seeing it played out in higher education. The real solution is we need to nationalise universities. We need to nationalise our aged care. We need to actually stop mucking around where we're actually talking about the, the key bits of socialisation is the care for the young and the care for the elderly uh, and providing people the support to get on and function in society. But somehow our society thinks this is all profit. It's all for profit. Um, I don't know what you think, Ben, but, I mean, that's the political arguments, I think. And then they're probably like there's the industrial ones that we can run about the limitations we've got. 
Um, but I think right now is an opportunity that activists need to be having these discussions about the role of the state and the role of profit in terms of whether it's providing shelter or care, you know, for the vulnerable or, 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 or education for people is probably the where the hope bit is, I guess. I don't know what you reckon. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, it's time to renationalise big swathes of the commanding heights of the economy. Uh, you know, we, there's clearly good arguments for it in, in sectors where the market has demonstrably failed, like aged care, mm. but also in um, many other aspects of the economy. Um, I would say uh, energy is another really good example. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, I think, you know, that's a role particularly for activists and for campaigners to try and drag the Overton window left on that kind of stuff to to continue to to re-energize debates around the role of the state and um, the failure of markets um, because they are pretty obviously failing and um, if we're clever about it and if we're vocal and we seize this opportunity we can reframe that discussion and I think that would be a powerful thing to do but I'm actually not seeing a lot of that like you don't mm. see a big campaign from people saying we should renationalize aged care um, mm. there's a lot of horror and sadness about the fate of what's what's going on in, in our aged care facilities um, but you know there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of campaigning for a solution there uh, and I think that kind of points to to the weakness in some respects of Australian civil society and you know, uh, there's aspects of, of the left, particularly the progressive left in Australia, where, you know, they're very strong, but in, in other policy areas and spheres, they can be quite weak, you know. So the, the, there's lots of work for us to do to kind of attack that kind of, uh, those ideas of common sense that have become entrenched in society, you know, as, as Gramsci talked about, um, where, you know, for, for many people, they just assume that, yeah, of course things should be done for a profit. I mean, that's just how we do things. And, mm. and of course, you know, um, so there's, there's education needs to be done there. And it's a cultural thing as well. So, you know, we need to, to fight some of these battles on multiple fronts at once. Absolutely. It does sort of seem like the way forward is really um, industrial action um, and not only industrial action, but... Um, probably uh, in some cases necessarily illegal industrial action uh, and also forms that tie in well with civil society because what we do have is the space for robust civil society organizations to organize um, especially you know using online platforms um, and whatever to sort of form a you know social bulwarks um, for the people that are really putting themselves on the line in terms of necessarily breaking the law or um or at least resisting our um, draconian industrial relations regime um but yeah also i think political strikes um, are probably something that have to happen for to really break through this seeming impasse in, in terms of uh putting massive structural uh economic reforms and industrial reforms back on the table i mean i think that's all true and you know uh to, to phrase it in, in the terms that you phrased it, I think also illustrates the scale of the challenge that's faced by the left in this country. Uh, and the other thing I'd say is we also need to attack the strengths, the bastions of, of private power. You know, for example, I think we need to be much stronger in attacking fossil fuels and uh, mining, um, the extractive core of the Australian economy, that, that really makes it tick. You know, that's the, mm -hmm. the, the, it certainly is the commanding height of the Australian economies. Um, some of those incredibly lucrative 
mining and energy concessions really i mean to call them companies i think is is is, is not really the right term for you know <laughs> essentially what you know almost little you know fiefdoms or duchies mm. that have been carved out of the iron ore of western australia and then dug up and sold off um for for minimal gain to to the the australian citizenry as a whole um so you know i think we need to be fighting much harder uh, against those kind of um, against the, the, the socio-political power of, of mining barons and billionaires. And, you know, like I, I was talking to a mate of mine who lives over in Perth the other day and, you know, he was telling me just a, about just the number of things that Andrew Forrest is involved with in Western Australia, like the tentacles of Mindaroo mm. just sort of um, snake into almost every aspect of Perth society from the top to the bottom, you know, whether it's football teams or NGOs, you know, the, the funding of universities. It's, it's, it's hard to escape um, the, the hand of Forrest, um, you know, so... Um, it's obviously difficult to attack that kind of level of wealth and privilege and power, but I think we actually we need to start mm. doing that um, if we're to win back some gains for for ordinary workers. Yeah, that that example of Andrew Fox. I mean, if there's an example, an Australian example of a failed state, which is really what charity is, um, you've got that going on over there. He's he's able to pose himself and as you know the the great philanthropists and. <laughs> It's, it's not it's not good uh, not good at all but i think those challenges there are absolutely spot on ben and um the challenges are quite huge i guess the the positive thing that is there for the left which like i guess i guess there's that element of like well we the federal government's changed there's an opportunity to see something different i think there's an element of people sitting back and wanting something to happen but not really sure where what to do uh, at the moment, but I guess our concern is that people are going to wait around too much, too much. And right now, while people are waiting around, there's literally people who are being, you know, don't have enough live to live on from New Start. Um, we've got incredible poverty, incredible homelessness. We've got um, the the farce that is, if you're lucky enough to buy a home and you put yourself at risk in terms of being a homeowner. Um, you're not really, you're only doing one bit better than say some poor bugger who's tr barely trying to make rent in a, in a many cities around the world who can, around the, around Australia can barely do that. And the wages are so low. So I, I think the concern is that the, those economic drivers are going to have, we'll be putting, piling more pressure on. I guess that that political space there is, it has to be taken on and, 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 and done. I think in Victoria, what would be great is if the, um, ALP actually just got on with it and actually enabled their membership to actually participate in a democratic organization that's really very very <laughs> bizarre being active members in the act branch just going what two years now of uh, administration it's it's it, it's insane and they're fighting a victorian state election um so look all, all power to left-wing organizations down in victoria have a crack because I think they can very, very, very justifiably make a point that they're democratic um, in and of itself, and put these things. So it'll be interesting to see the state results, but maybe there's a there's an opportunity there. I think politically to raise these ideas and also industrial. I think we can chew gum and and walk as well. Um, we don't have to just focus on trying to break it out in, in unions. Uh, I think given how weak the the, the left is, um, looking for areas to struggle in. So whether it's um, you know, being involved in an organisation but not investing too much in it. Um, ALP is part of an area of struggle, but so too is your union. So too is, you know, looking at 
um, what political or, or activist groups are doing things and um, getting involved in that. I know, look, Extinction Rebellion, I think is a classic, like, you know, good on them and good on environment activists. But I think I think you reminded me, Ben, of fun stuff we did in the in the early thousands where we actually targeted the financial institutions that were benefiting from the exploitation of, of you know, look, look at made We had M1, we had the World Economic Forum protests, uh, I know in Canberra we we shut down mining industry house. So the the, the targets are there and clear. Um, activists should you know we know who the bad guys are. Go and confront them and say hello, uh, <laughs> and put that political pressure on. Uh, otherwise, it's all a lot of waiting around, a lot of disappointed noise. If you think that people are going to do it for us, obviously not. Um, anyway, that's my little. <laughs> My little vent there. Yeah, I, I mean, I think civil society in Australia has been good at campaigns and bad at power building. So it's been good at um, single-issue campaigning um, and sometimes shifting the dial significantly on particular campaigns and particular issues yep. over the last couple of decades. It's been poor at building institutional power, um, you know, of a progressive nature or, um, you know, as a counterbalancing force to the power of capital. So um, non-profit organisations, NGOs in particular, I would also include many of the environment groups, they haven't, I would say, built sustainable long-term institutions uh, that can continue, you know, that can keep up the fight, um, that have assets, that have resources. Uh, the only organisations that have done that in Australia on a long-term basis are the unions. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that the unions are, of course, uh, at a low ebb at the moment, although perhaps they're just starting to rebuild, um, but they're coming back from a long way. So, you know, um, there's there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, and I would say that the, one of the more interesting aspects of, of the um, perhaps the rebirth of a certain type of union activism is that we are starting to see finally um, some of these unions expand back into industries where they have been almost vanished or were, you know, completely disempowered. So the, the retail fast food workers union, for example, it's a, it's a relatively new union. Um, it's it started to, to expand its membership into areas of the economy where for decades there was either a weak union or no union at all. Um, and, and they've started to get wins. I think that's quite interesting and significant. Um, you know, you're seeing, for example, at the moment, a strike by uh, book retailers uh, at Readings Bookstore in Melbourne. You know, now it's a small chain of bookstores and it's not big in the scheme of the economy, but it's, it's an interesting straw in the wind, I think. Um, you know, 20 years ago, I don't think we would have imagined such a thing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, th- there are a few little rays of light out there if you're prepared to look. Yep. Did you see that the Financial Review was covering the result of the Fair Work Commission with the Apple, um, the Fast Week with um, Rafu, which I'm a member of, uh, had that win in the in the commission where they were trying to stop industrial action from the um, Rafu from going ahead. Um, but anyway, I read the, I read the whole thing. I only just posted it late this this evening. But I think people should go and check that out. Uh, there's an interesting development with what's been going on with negotiations with with Apple. Uh, which is quite groundbreaking in that sort of sector because it's a sector that's been very poorly organised in the past. So um, yeah, pretty cool. Now, look, Ben, look, it's been great talking to you. It's like um, we really enjoyed getting your insights on what's going on with the economy, what's going on with the state of the left and the options there with the PLP. Like I know, I know, like, I mean, 
yeah, things are a bit dark at times. I think at the, at the at the you know at the federal level, but I think I think you're right. There are rays of sunshine out there, and it's about having a go at that. Is there anything else you'd like to like to add that you'd like to um, talk about at all, Ben? Or? Yeah, look, I, I'd say just to sort of close the circle and return to the the point that we started off on. You know, times of high inflation are obviously they're bad for the real wages of workers if they can't get pay rises but they can be paradoxically a good incentive for people to rediscover the power of collective action. So, you know, times of high inflation remind ordinary workers that that's one sure way to actually get a pay rise and to improve their material position is to band together collectively with their colleagues in the workplace and use their collective power and demand wage rises from their employer. So bosses have the money and they, they have the legislative power, uh, but... Um, they're outnumbered um, by us. So, uh, you know, some of these very simple lessons that workers have known for a couple of hundred years, but we seem to have forgotten sometime in the 90s in Australia, you know, perhaps they're starting to be relearned in this current high inflation environment. That's great. Thank you so much, Ben. Mm, absolutely. You know, it reminds me, before we let you go, Ben, it reminds me of uh, the topic of my honours thesis, which was about um, uh, during the two world wars, governments levied, uh, you know, effectively sort of sin taxes on beer. Um, and what I looked at was um, these big uh, beer boycotts conducted basically as wildcat actions against the sanction of um, union officials uh, in New South Wales and Queensland, especially, but actually all over Australia, um, which you know, basically protesting the, the raising of the price of a pint of beer from, say, um, five pence to six pence, something like that. Um, and what it actually did was it united workers in unions or in industries, which we wouldn't generally consider to be related in any way at all, um, because suddenly they were united over their experiences, not as uh, wage earners, but as wage spenders. That's a good example from history of the way that these kinds of events in ter- macroeconomic terms can have a, a big effect on our capacity for organizing and our capacity for solidarity. Yeah, that's a great point, Jacob. And look, I just want to give a shout out to a colleague of mine at Monash, uh, Tony Moore. He's running a project at the moment called Conviction Politics. Um, there's a documentary and a, and a few other bits of history that he's doing. But I mean, he reminds us in that project that Australia has a, a wonderful history of radical labor unionism. Right, and, and it goes back um, all the way to the toll puddle martyrs and uh, to people who were literally convicted of associating in the, in the English economy um, and transported to Australia for the crime of unionism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, that, and that played a huge part in the growth of uh, unions in Australia and ultimately in, in the birth of the Australian Labor Party in the 1890s. So um, we have a rich history of, of radical worker activism in, in this country. And, uh, you know, it's probably a timely reminder that we could rediscover it, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And look, uh, lastly, uh, shout out there to the UTS uh, NTEU members who took industrial action today. Was I think it was them? No, and University of Newcastle. Uh, and University saw, of Newcastle. Yeah, yeah that's right. I saw some uh, some images there of that. And there's rolling stoppages going on also across New South Wales of TAFE workers who are taking industrial action for the first time in a very long time as well. So there there is quite a few things going on, and all power to those workers that are having having a go at the moment um but look ben thank you for for joining us and we really appreciate your time 
Yeah, thanks else. so much, guys. So um, my four-year-old did rock up a little bit there um, in between some of my chats, but, um, you know, sometimes that that's how it rolls when you're a parent. Yeah, that's yeah. right. All good. Enjoyed the chat very much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much.